A few weeks ago, I made a deal with you that if you stuck with me through two weeks' worth of sermons in, uh, in Matthew's genealogy, uh, that it would be a good payoff, right? I told, you, I told you that you would understand Advent a little bit more deeply and that you would understand Matthew's gospel much more deeply. And I, I hope that you're finding that to be true. We'll find out after this. But um, I wanted to, to give you a little bit of a review in case you've missed the last couple weeks. Just about three basic things. We've learned at least three things from that genealogy. First of all, the first two words in Matthew's gospel in the Greek are biblos, geneseos. And what that means is book of Genesis. That was a pretty cool finding because you just read this boring list of names, you think there's nothing new here. But actually Matthew is trying to teach us something very interesting. He's saying that with Jesus comes a new Genesis. And that means two things. Here you go. First of all, Jesus is not just something new that came in out of thin air. That he's connected all the way back to Genesis. He's connected as part of the whole story of Israel. The other thing that that means is that Matthew is trying to teach us that with Jesus' arrival as a baby, a new creation, a new Genesis is possible. A new kind of life, a new kind of way of seeing the world. All right? The second thing we learned is that this Messiah, Jesus, is he's open to accepting all kinds of people. Kinds of people that you and I might not consider worthy, like us. In the genealogy, there are four names that just do not belong in there. Four women's names, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. These four women, as we saw, were not only women, but they were Gentile women. They were not Jews, so Jesus comes from this mixed line. Not only that, but these women either had questionable moral character or they were connected to men who had questionable moral character. And the idea being that Jesus is not at all ashamed to have that in his background. In fact, that's why he came in the first place, to accept all people who would put their faith in him. And that's good news for this guy because I have questionable character sometimes as well. Third, uh, when Jesus comes, he's going to establish his kingdom or his rule. Matthew challenges us in his genealogy to get ready for this kingdom shift by focusing on two important things. If you want this unpacked a little bit more, listen to last week's sermon, because that's where all this is coming from. But first thing, if this new kingdom is coming with Jesus, Matthew challenges us to get to know the king. And that means our devotional life. That means actually spending time with Jesus in, in his scriptures and in prayer, and, and so that when he comes, we'll actually know who he is. The second thing is to get to know the king's work. So that's engaging in that kingdom work today. Things like working for justice, including outsiders, helping the helpless, giving a voice to the voiceless, many of the things that you're already involved with in your ministry uh, in different ways in the church and outside the church. So... With this in mind, we now get to Matthew's story of the birth of Jesus. I want to invite you to stand as we read the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man, and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, 
For the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now, all of this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child, and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means the with us God. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord had commanded him. And he took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. Holy Spirit, we invite you to open our hearts and our minds to the scripture and what you're going to do in us and through us today. We recognize that for many, this is a familiar passage. So help us to get behind, get beyond the boxes that we've put you in. Um, help us to get past the lie that we already know this through and through. And help us to see what you're doing in us today. Amen. You may be seated. I got to be honest, you know, we're working through the genealogy and then I'm all excited to get to the narrative today, the birth of Jesus. And, and let's just face it, let's be honest. Matthew's account of the birth of Jesus is not that exciting, okay? Matthew gives a whole eight verses out of his whole gospel. He only gives eight verses to the account of Jesus' birth. In fact, if you include the, the stories about Jesus' early life in Matthew's gospel, you get only 31 verses. And most of that's about the Magi, you know, these guys from the East coming over. And, um, I mean, they're the only thing that makes it in the children's Bibles. And everybody knows that the children's Bibles only put the important stories in. They're probably only in the children's Bibles because they ride camels and they bring gifts and they're cool, they're cute for like Christmas pageants and stuff like that. Luke, on the other hand, steals the show. He gives, he gives us the backstory of Zechariah and Elizabeth, and of course he gets to focus on Mary. Luke devotes 118 verses of his gospel to the birth narrative of Jesus. 131 verses if you, include, if you count Jesus' childhood. In Luke, you get all the cool stuff, like angels' visitations, and a heavenly choir, and shepherds watching their flocks by night, and good news of great joy. You could get the Magnificat in there too. All the spectacular stuff happens in Luke's gospel. I guess you should have been here last year when we, we did Luke's gospel for Advent. Well, Luke's account may be more entertaining, I'll give it that. But I think Matthew's account of Jesus' birth has a way of communicating that's relevant to an average guy like me. And this is not a put down, but maybe for average people like you. I think Matthew's gospel is relevant for the day-to-day -day stuff. If Luke's gospel gives us the birth story from the eyes of Zechariah, the high priest of the Jews, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, Matthew gives us the story through the eyes of a simple carpenter named Joseph, a guy we really don't know that much about at all. He doesn't seem to have had any prominence in his hometown. He wasn't a priest or a scholar that we know of. He's probably a working man. Happened to come from the line of David, and he was betrothed to a young woman of equally meager estate. He was an ordinary, average guy. Going to work, planning to get married, probably had a modest plan to settle down, to have kids, teach the kids his trade, and die content. And then his world was turned upside down. I'm talking about chaos breaking into Joseph's world. Now, 
I would venture to say that most healthy people don't like chaos in their lives. Now I know some people are more structured and some people are more spontaneous, but I'm not talking about personality traits here. What I'm talking about is whether you're a planner or you're a drifter, most of us truly, we we don't do well with actual chaos in our lives. This week, a water main broke in Fairhaven. You guys hear about that one? Right? So what happened was, over 700,000 gallons of water spills out of this water main, flows downhill, One of the places it hit was Hillcrest Church, where our kids go to preschool. So we're scrambling to find childcare, and luckily we've got uh, Alicia and Nikki and Emily helped us, and many of you were willing to help as well. I appreciate that. It was a kind of chaos, a kind of inconvenience on my schedule. But that's not the kind of chaos I'm talking about. The kind of chaos I'm talking about is the kind of chaos that sweeps the carpet out from under your feet. It's the kind of thing that that makes it feel like there's a lump of lead in your gut weighing you down. The kind of chaos that makes you feel impotent, powerless, confused. It's when you unexpectedly lose a loved one. It's when you're diagnosed with cancer. It's when you lose a job you're accounting on. Or when Marco emails you with the cartel is after you. It's when a friend betrays you. Or an earthquake, or a flood, or an outbreak of disease happens. Chaos is finding out you're pregnant with twins. Chaos is finding out you're not pregnant anymore. Chaos is the emotional body blow when a spouse leaves you or betrays you. Chaos happens to all of us. To be human involves experiencing unexpected circumstances that turn your world upside down. And that's why Matthew's story of Jesus' birth told from Joseph's perspective is so relevant to every one of us. He, Joseph, is our fellow sojourner who had his world turned upside down. And I think we can learn a lot from how he trusted God through all of this. On the evening of March 18th, 2008, I tore my ACL and both meniscus in my left knee playing indoor soccer. I had surgery where they jury-rigged some dead guy's ankle tendon into my knee and put it all back together. I went through months of excruciating physical therapy and rehab. And this Wednesday, I played racquetball with Mr. Matt Chandler, which, Matt, I was reflecting on this, and uh, you were actually there when I injured my knee those years ago. That was odd. So first time I've played in seven years, first time in ten years for Mr. Chandler. And uh, I won't tell you how we did against each other, but I will confess that both of us were handily beaten by a 53-year-old lady who we foolishly challenged to show us the game. (laughs) Now, I I was a little bit sore afterwards, but the good news is I didn't once think of my knee. I completely took for granted the injury the great surgery that the doctor gave me, and all those hard uh, weeks and months of rehab. I tell you this, because for many of us, these eight short verses of Matthew's account of Jesus' birth go in one year and go out the other. We simply read through it and forget what it must have actually been like for Joseph. So what I want to do first is to help us get into Joseph's sandals a bit so we can relate to his story, all right? So, first thing we know about Joseph is that he's betrothed to this 
Lady Mary. Betrothal is kind of like what it means to be engaged in our culture, but it's much more binding, right? In the U.S., you, if you want to get engaged, guys, what you have to do is you have to, have to ask a girl to marry you. She has to say yes, then you're engaged. Now, there's some cultural things. Sometimes, you know, the guy will ask the, the girl's dad if it's okay. Happens sometimes, sometimes it doesn't. Uh, the other thing that's kind of nice, right, ladies, is a ring. Um, although, I didn't have a ring for Corey when... If there was a snowstorm and I couldn't get to the store. I had it picked out. <laughs> she has one now. Uh, but basically, I mean, you, you ask, somebody says yes, you're engaged. And if you break up, I mean, it's sad and everything, and maybe you have to rearrange wedding plans or cancel the caterer or something, but basically you just break up, and that's engagement. Um, Betrothal was an entirely different kind of arrangement. In first century Judaism, most marriages were arranged. Okay, so a man uh, from his early 20s to early 30s would be arranged to marry a young girl from 12 and a half years old to 15 or 16 years old. That was kind of the average. The marriage was arranged by the bride and groom's family, usually mediated by a trusted person from the community or maybe a family friend. And they would put these two together. When two people were betrothed, the man would sometimes have to pay a modest bride price to pay some cash. But the woman's family would have to pay an expensive dowry, usually some kind of combination of, of, of finances like money and maybe some cattle or something like that or some something of value. The dowry was a gift to the groom, but it was also uh, an insurance policy. Because if the groom were to unjustly leave the woman or to get killed, that dowry would kind of be her pension plan. Now, if even during betrothal, the, the woman was found to have committed adultery, she would be off the market to marry anybody else, and she would lose that dowry to her husband-to-be. The most important thing for us to wrap our heads around in this betrothal relationship was that it was legally binding. Generally, once you have that betrothal, you, it lasted one year. So the woman and the man would still live in their parents' homes, they would be betrothed to one another for a year, and the wedding would be a year later. They would have the seven-day celebration where they would consummate the relationship, you know what I'm saying? But um, during that year, even though they, they weren't living together, and they could only meet together in public, wouldn't that be weird? Like you're engaged, but you can't be in private. So they're always kind of with families watching. They're still legally married during that year. That's weird for me to think about. Um, but the law was written so that during that year of betrothal, if the man died, the woman would technically be a widow. Also, if one of them committed adultery during that year, even though they weren't officially consummated in the marriage yet, it would still be as if they cheated on a married person. And that carried the death penalty for women in their culture. So Mary and Joseph are betrothed to one another. They undoubtedly have regular plans for a regular life, kind of like you and I. And it comes uh, to light that this virgin Mary, this virgin Mary, is pregnant. <laughs> now, enter the chaos into Joseph's life. Remember, you and I have the luxury of knowing what Joseph doesn't know. I mean, we know, no big deal, that's Jesus. I mean, it's worth it, right? Joseph has no clue what's going on in his world. He's a regular guy who just happens to know that his wife-to-be is knocked up and he didn't do it. Guys, for a minute, get in Joseph's sandals. How would you feel? 
How would you feel? Your wife gets pregnant and you've been away on a business trip. Um, your girlfriend gets pregnant and you know you haven't been doing that. Um, you just got to feel that. How's Joseph feeling right now? Now, I'm sure Mary, if you read Luke's gospel, she had the vision from the angel. Uh, uh, she had an appearance of a live angel, like right in front of her telling this, that it was going to be the savior of the world. I'm sure she tried to tell Joseph, hey, guess what an angel told me? That, that uh, the Holy Spirit was going to get me pregnant, and the savior of the world is going to come out of us, little hodunk villagers. Now, that's great, but... <laughs> According to the Jewish tradition, God had not spoken through a prophet for like 400 years at this point. Now he's going and having babies with village girls? I mean, it seems a little bit far-fetched. I mean, put yourself in Joseph's shoes, right? Well, Joseph, it says, was a righteous man. And in first century Judaism, righteousness meant abiding by the law, abiding by the law, and fitting in with society. You see, in our culture, uh, we exalt, oftentimes, the individual, don't you? It, it, it's almost a, a bit of a badge of honor to kind of buck the system a little bit, to, to question authority. Um, you know, it's kind of our rite of passage or something. But in Joseph's culture, your identity was not found in your individualism, but it was found in the collective. So being a righteous man, Joseph sought a divorce. A, because that was what was socially acceptable in his community, and B, because it was the law. There just wasn't another way to look at it. She committed adultery, apparently, because she's pregnant, and he didn't do it. And so he wanted to follow the law as a righteous man and divorce her. But there were two ways that you could go about a divorce in the first century. First, you could do what most people would have done, and that's taken Mary to court, where she and her family would be brought out and publicly humiliated. By taking Mary to court, Joseph would be free to marry another woman. He would be clean of the shame that might be associated with his connection to this pregnancy. You see, what happens if he doesn't divorce her is they think he did it. And as common as that happens in our world, that was a big no-no um, in Joseph's world. Most importantly, if he, may, if he divorces her in this public arena, Joseph would be able to keep her dowry. Okay? So he gets a financial payout out of it. Now, the Roman Empire that ruled over Palestine during that time took away the right for Jews to have the death penalty. So technically, unless there was mob violence, Mary was not going to be executed. But she was going to be emotionally executed. The typical thing that would happen to someone who committed adultery and was found guilty before a court, well, she would be dragged before the city gate. That's where business took place. It's like, it's like the city center or something like that. She'd be dragged there, stripped of all her jewelry. Her hair would be cut down. Then her, her clothing would be ripped open where one or two of her breasts would be exposed. She'd be spit on. And then she would have to be sitting there while other women would parade their daughters around to look at this moral example of how not to be. Joseph's divorce would have been completely, legally, the righteous thing to do, according to the law. He was probably confused. He was probably angry. And in fact, listen to this, by Roman standards, not to divorce Mary publicly would have brought shame not only on Joseph, but on his whole family as well. So the stakes are really high here. He would have been viewed as weak or impotent. 
And worse yet, he would have been thought of as a pimp. Because she got pregnant, not by him, and that would, that would have been the assumption. But Joseph, Joseph shows remarkable compassion and reminds us that righteousness is not just a personal piety. Oftentimes when we use this word righteousness, we think, how I behave, I use good language, and I, um, you know, I open the door for old ladies, and uh, you know, it's, it's all this personal, I, I read my Bible enough, I pray enough, and I have this outward appearance of personal righteousness. But righteousness also has a completely other side to it. Righteousness is about how we treat others as well. Joseph chose to protect Mary from the extreme shaming of a public divorce. And he chose to send her away quietly. Which probably means he did uh, a Hillelite any cause divorce. Which is this kind of catch-all catch category. In fact, that's the kind of divorce that Jesus was so dead set against later on in Matthew's Gospel. Uh, basically, it was a... It was this loophole in the law where, you know, your wife burns dinner and you can divorce her for any cause. It's absolutely ridiculous. So basically, if he chooses this line of action, he and Mary would just privately go before a judge and absolve their marriage. No public shaming. Of course, Joseph would lose the dowry and he would have to live with the shame of being thought of as the person who knocked her up. Joseph is compassionate and righteous at the same time. That is, as I'm preaching through this, just think that that's an important place to pause for a minute. Compassionate and righteous at the same time. Those things, friends, they have to go together. They have to go together. Now, Joseph is a thoughtful man. Verse 20 tells us that Joseph considered his course of action. And that's a powerful word in the Greek. It means to meditate on, to think on deeply, and in this sense even to think on prayerfully. Joseph is not impulsive. You ever notice that? He's not seeking revenge or anger, even though as far as he can tell, as far as he can tell, he's been cheated on. Think about that. What a lesson for us. That is hard to do when you've been wronged. Don't you want to get justice? Don't you want to make it right? Don't you want to show that the other person is wrong? Oftentimes we have knee-jerk reactions. Like, uh-uh, I'm going to fight for what's mine. Think about it also in Joseph's culture, in his society, in his law. The right thing to do, according to his friends, would have been to divorce her publicly. He doesn't do it. He considers. He slows down. He listens. And in this space of stillness and quiet, Joseph has a dream. So you know those times when you're, in your, you're praying and you accidentally fall asleep? Don't feel bad about it. An angel might come in a dream. Stuff happens. So anyway, he falls asleep. He has this dream. And an angel comes to him. And he tells him about how the Holy Spirit got Mary pregnant and that the child would be the savior of the world. He's supposed to name him this Jesus name, which is uh, Yeshua, God saves. And, and he's going to be known as Emmanuel, which means the with us God. The fulfillment of everything Israel and the world has been waiting for. And as a result of this vision or dream, Joseph obeys God. He marries Mary and keeps her a virgin until... Jesus is born. I don't know, you guys. I mean, 
A vision of an angel while I'm sleeping? That's not a whole lot of evidence. But yet Joseph takes it on faith and he obeys. Now there's some things I want to point out that we could easily overlook. I'm going to bring it home now. First, by obeying God and marrying Mary, that's a funny thing to say, by obeying God and marrying Mary, Joseph does not, he does not escape chaos. Don't you think sometimes when we encounter chaos in our lives, we, where's God to rescue me from this? Where's God to make it all clean and neat again? In fact, following God for Joseph made things more complicated. If he would have just had a simple divorce, he'd have been free to move on with his life. He'd have had all that dowry money, nice down payment on a little new camel, the sports camel. Um, you know, he could, have, he could have got married and just gone on with his plans. Forget about Mary. Forget about what would have happened. But his obedience to God actually brings more chaos. His obedience to God actually brings shame upon himself and shame upon his, his father and his family and his brothers, if he had them. Scripture says that love covers a multitude of sins. Love covers, our love for each other covers a multitude of sins. That means that sometimes the obedient and the loving thing to do is to extend grace and compassion even, if, even when it means taking on the blame of someone else. Even when it means taking on someone else's shame. i got to say that again. I better read it so I get it right. That means that sometimes the obedient and loving thing to do is to extend grace and compassion even when it means taking the blame or the shame for others. By obeying God, Joseph is going to be perpetually misunderstood. He'd be the dad of the weird kid. When, Joseph, when Jesus would grow up and do his, uh, his strange miracles and when he would challenge the authorities of the day, completely countercultural, he's going to bring shame onto Joseph and his family. And after Jesus was born, oh, there's a whole other thing going on. Joseph is going to have more dreams and he's going to have to take his whole family and uproot them and, and flee to Egypt just to save their lives from crazy King Herod. Obedience costs. Sometimes obedience brings chaos into our lives. But second, notice the difference between Joseph and Zacharias from the text that Nathaniel read earlier. Zacharias was the acting high priest that year. He was an expert in the scriptures. I mean, he, he went to seminary, if you will. He wasn't just visited in a dream. He had the actual angel Gabriel stand before him and tell him that his wife Elizabeth was going to be with child. He had that actual angel. He had all the knowledge of the scriptures. He, he was the acting high priest. And he still didn't believe. And so God made him mute for nine months. For nine months, Zacharias couldn't use his words. He just had to listen and to be still. For nine months of prayer, it took for Zacharias to finally come around to see from God's perspective. Now compare that with Joseph. Anything but a scholar or a religious man, at least not to his peers. In fact, do you ever notice that in all of Scripture, Joseph doesn't even get lines? <laughs> He's silent. He doesn't speak. But he's thoughtful. He doesn't need a spectacular visitation from Angel Gabriel. He gets it in a dream, once removed. He has a prayer life. And he receives a vision and a call 
that will not only change his life, but the entire course of the world. Now, I was thinking about this. In our fast-paced culture, we communicate all the time. I'm communicating with you right now with my words. We send text messages all the time, emails all the time. How will we hear the voice of God if we're always putting forth our agendas with our words? How are we going to hear the voice of God if we're not silent once in a while? We may know lots of things, but if we don't know Jesus, we don't know enough. Do we have the courage to trust that He is in control even in the midst of our chaos? Finally, third thing we learn, and this is very good news. Joseph is the silent character in the story. The Holy Spirit is often known as the silent member of the Trinity. Remember Matthew 1, 1 through 18 reads, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. You know what it reads like in Greek? Now the genesis of Jesus Christ is as follows. In the beginning of the universe, the Spirit hovered over the womb of of the earth. He was active in creation. In the beginning of Jesus' incarnation, the Spirit hovered over the womb of Mary, silently changing the course of the world forever. Joseph's silent obedience ensures that Jesus would be adopted into his family. Do you get that? Mary's not from the line of David. Joseph is from the line of David. And so Jesus is born through the Holy Spirit and Mary. He's not connected to the prophecy. He's not connected to the promise. It's through Joseph's hospitality, his embrace of this bastard son that he gets connected into the line of David. And in this culture, just like, just like ours, when you adopt a child and you give that child your name, they have every right, they have every uh, inheritance of any of your biological kids. So by Joseph silently obeying, he adopts the living God into his family. And Jesus offers to adopt us into his family as well. By his grace, we're offered to be heirs that will share in his inheritance forever. And that, brothers and sisters, means that you always have a family means that you always have a community means that you always have hope because through faith in Jesus you can be adopted into the family of the living God that's good news let's pray